Hi, ho! We're bringing you Block Digest number 112 on today, Wednesday, July 11th, at block height 531,498. I'd like to introduce Mr. Shinobi Monkey. Hello, everybody. Hey, Rick, you want to say hi to everybody? Well, howdy ho, Mr. Pooh Man from South Park, Mr. Hanky. Yeah, I didn't know we were getting introduced by Mr. Hanky. What's up, Mr. Hanky and Shinobi? What's going on, man? How are you feeling today, Janine? Snore. That's it. <laughs> Snore. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. disappeared when I was going to ask him how he's doing. All right, everybody, I'm going to hand it off to Shinobi Monkey, and we'll get started for the day. All right, so sorry sorry for that, guys. Mr. Hanky just, like, shoved me out of the way and took control of the mic. I, I, I apologize for that. <laughs> Powerful little piece of poop, man. You got to watch out for Mr. Hanky. Right, what's going on, Acnix, though? He, he has returned. Is this, like... Uh, Mr. Christmas Pooh or Mr. Monkey, the Christmas Pooh returned. Is this the Christmas Pooh of July? What is going on? I don't know. I impulsively decided to use a funny voice. Don't ask questions. There is no logic. Well, before we begin, I just want to say apologies if the sound quality on my end is terrible because I don't have my snowball mic. I think everybody will still appreciate your in-depth research and breakdowns. All right. Uh, I guess before we get ripping, sorry uh, we weren't on Sunday, guys. That was my fault. I had some uh, stupid nonsense to deal with out of state. So we're back. And uh, prepare for Shinobi Monkey to only have half a clue what he's talking about because he is not an expert in applied cryptography. All right. Let's bumble through this. Hope I only make a partial fool of myself. And then uh, to correct everything that I'm wrong about, I suggest you all watch Peter Woolley's presentation in San Francisco when that finally gets tossed up on YouTube. But let's go. Snore signatures. What are they about? All right. So finally, uh, Peter uh, has proposed a BIP to actually get us rolling along to an implementation and a test to see whether we will have more political nonsense like we did with SegWit. So uh, I, I hope we won't, but I guess we'll find out. So uh, real quick, um, th this is pretty much um, not going to give us the full uh, theoretical functionality right away. So um, like off the bat, there's still a decent amount of stuff to be done. Um, for a subset of uh, multi-signature uh, for signature aggregation. So this is pretty much just a proposal to really get us like the basic Schnorr signatures and get that rolled out. And then there's still, you know, a decent amount of work to do to really get all of the uh, applications or features we can build out uh, based on this in the future. So um, Schnorr, there's an actual legitimate security proof um, unlike ECDSA, so that's a nice thing. Provably non-malleable, and the validation is a lot more efficient. So uh, 
pretty much technically speaking, um, we're going to be shaving off, uh, I think like eight bytes on the average signature size. And, uh, with the way that they're doing signature encoding, working towards standardization, it's going to be a fixed 64 bytes. So a little bit of shaving efficiency and unlike, uh, the deer encoding that's being used right now, there, there's no variation. Like every signature using Schnorr will be exactly 64 bytes and there won't be you know, the, those few stray bytes that kind of throw the fee estimation in a little goofy. And the one thing, like, uh, graphic-wise, yay, everybody can look at a graphic and pretend Shinobi knows what he's talking about. <laughs> um, so the, the big improvement in terms of validation is being able to batch validate. And like what, what this is going to allow is pretty much the, the ability to go through a, a large chunk of Schnorr signatures and validate them all in a batch. And what, what this will allow is uh, much faster block validation. But it's, it's not working in a way where like if something is invalid, you will be able to like work through and figure out exactly like which signature failed validation for which transaction. Like it's just the entire batch is either verified as valid or something in the batch is invalid. But considering the fact that everything is pretty much lumped together in blocks and if anything in there is invalid, then it invalidates the entire block and all of its contents that it doesn't really matter. You like, we, there's no need to really pick through and figure out which transaction was invalid. Like if anything is, you, you can throw the block away, like that block is invalid and nothing in it is considered confirmed. So, so technically speaking, not really, um, what would be the best word? Not really very narrow in, in the, um, the capabilities, but considering like the architecture of how the system works as a whole, it doesn't really matter. Like it does what it's supposed to do in the end and gives us a speed up in, you know, block validation and like the, the one in technical issue with it really has no practical implications or downsides at all in the real world. All right. And now here we go. This is where Shinobi's going to look like a goof and a clueless fool. So um, pretty much here are, um, two different ways that signatures could work as far as the, their actual uh, construction. And um, I want to remind everybody that when, when we're talking about uh, like a public key, for instance, in elliptic curve cryptography, it's actually two points on a graph. And so like th these are two different ways that we can encode the signature. And um, they're going with the second one, uh, which requires encoding a specific point uh, related to the message in the public key into the signature. And, you know, obviously batch validation, that's something we want. So this is what we're going to go with. And there is a, um, you know, as I've kind of, you know, very vaguely discussed before, there are some issues um, with things like multi-signature or like combining um, different signatures or keys in the math of how it works to kind of allow funny games to be played. And so um, this key, key prefixing um, method that they're using is kind of a way to address one of those things. And then, um, you know, as I just said, you know, a public key is really like two points on a graph. 
Like if you like pick through uh, mastering Bitcoin, you can see that there are like a number of different formats for displaying a public key. And really the raw key is two very large numbers that are actually the X and the Y coordinate on a, um, on a graph of the, the curve that's being used. And, you know, kind of what people are usually um, familiar with seeing is more of like a compressed form where you kind of just make a, like kind of a shorthand notation to be able to figure out the, uh, the other coordinate based on the one that's kind of compressed and shown. And so one of the things um, being done in order to uh, kind of both limit the size of the signature down to the, the 64 byte uh, constant that's being uh, done in the standardization is um, one in the signature is really only dealing with the X coordinate of that key and then kind of having an implicit assumption when dealing with the Y coordinate that we are only going to use one specific Y. Because again, like as a graph in elliptic curves, everything is pretty much mirrored. So like the, this is part of why we have the signature malleation um, problem where you can kind of, as somebody without the key, tweak things um, in the signature and still have it actually be valid. It's, it's effectively using like the mirror of a, a value on the, on the graph. And so in kind of implicitly assuming like we're only going to use one of those, we can kind of, you know, squeeze a little bit of data out of what's actually put into things and just be a little more efficient at things that way. And, um, one one thing I also want to point out, um, the, this BIP is in the show notes. If you haven't read it, um, kind of try to go over it. Um, you know, like like I said, I am by no means a cryptographic expert here, but there are links for everything. If if like if you really want to dive deep into like the entire uh, Schnorr uh, specification being built out and the different features, every relevant paper and concept that's necessary to really grasp this at a deep level is in here. So you just kind of, you know, pick through it and follow the different links off. And if you really have the time and want to spend it, like everything you really need to like deeply understand this is in this bit. And so, um, all right, pretty much uh, let's, let's skip past the, the, the rest of the crypto stuff that Shinobi is, uh, <laughs> not really capable of stuff. It's, uh, yeah, I do that too. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. So the one one last thing I want to mention is um, there there's a thing called uh, Jacobian uh, coordinates, which is pretty much just like a, a way to format like the actual points um, on a graph that are related to the public key. So like th this is just kind of another way to kind of streamline and make the data that actually has to be computed and dealt with like a little more efficient to save, you know, validation time, like the amount of data being put into things. So that's definitely, if you really want to dive deep into this, something to read up on. And uh, down to the actual applications. So um, earlier this year, I hope everybody remembers, uh, Greg uh, Maxwell and Peter, and a few others actually wrote a formal paper for a multi-sig uh, scheme for Schnorr that kind of had, uh, you know, a security vulnerability, uh, at least theoretically speaking, pointed out by the, the cryptographic experts they submitted the paper to for review. And so that uh, scheme has actually been updated and that potential attack vector dealt with. And it, it pretty much required a trade-off of... Um, 
there, there was a two round interactive process for the original proposal to actually have a single uh, signature created by multiple parties. And in order to address, um, you know, the potential attack vector that was pointed out to them, they, they pretty much had to like move it up to like a three round process. So back and forth, there's like three rounds of interaction between all the uh, parties to the multi-sig required to actually, you know, get a valid signature for the uh, address. But this is only working for N of N multi-sig. So pretty much a multi-sig address that requires all of the key participants to sign. And to kind of get down to like some of the things that are really incomplete and then not really ready for deployment quite yet, uh, K of N or like a multi-sig that requires a subset of all of the key holders to sign a uh, threshold signature uh, is really the, the technical term for it, is not quite ready. Like they have um, some thoughts on this and, you know, a potential design for it, but this is something that they're they pretty much still have categorized as the, this really needs a thorough security analysis before this should be actually deployed. And, you know, this, this I think it, it, it sucks, but it's, it's a good thing to really see like people working on very core cryptographic features like this. Like we're gonna take this slow. Like we have a scheme built out, but this actually needs time for lots of eyes and lots of experts to actually go over before we start recommending people deploy or implement it. Because, you know, it's really, if you, if you fuck up the cryptography in something, you throw the entire architecture and system open to just get fucked with. And that's absolutely unacceptable in dealing with something like Bitcoin. Absolutely, man. That's, that's gonna be tested out for sure. There's some more six. Yeah, and um, uh, then the next potential application, um, if, if you guys watched uh, Building on Bitcoin or uh, read the, the recent paper on kind of a uh, scriptless script uh, version of a payment channel um, hash locks, this is pretty much just like, in general terms, it's pretty much just like, you know, adding and subtracting things from like a signature. So like, it, just think of it as like, you, you know, you throw in an extra variable to what you're signing and then sign it. And then given like whatever that extra variable is, like once it's revealed to you, you can kind of operate on the signature itself and then arrive at a valid signature for the message that was signed alone. So you can kind of use this in replacement of like a conventional hash lock. And one of the, uh, the biggest benefits of this um, is, you know, pointed out in the bit, is you can kind of have uh, a hash locked route in the Lightning Network. So, um, as an example, where each, you know, hash lock using an adapted or adapter signature along the route is not easily identifiable as like this. This is a singular payment being routed. Like to use the the conventional hash lock operation. Like you would actually be able to identify like the, the opcode with the hash of the pre-image and see that that pre-image hash is identical for each hop along the route. And with an adapter signature, the, this would allow kind of the same functionality while 
not really clearly identifying that each hop is involved in a single like identifiable payment. So this is, is very much an improvement in privacy potentially for payment channels. And also it kind of allows a much quicker like a re repurposing of things. Like you, you would be able to just kind of alter, you know, payments in route and not really have to go through like the entire like timeout replace, like blah, blah, blah process. And like that is, it's not just a privacy improvement, it's an efficiency improvement. And then the last one, which I'm kind of excited about, th this still needs, um, a lot more analysis and a way to address a potential um, attack vector, but blinded signatures, which is with uh, Schnorr, which is pretty much the uh, the primitive that like a Xiaomi and eCash server works on. Like you're, you're able to effectively sign something and not know what you're signing. And that's kind of the basis that, you know, a bank being able to anonymously issue and redeem like cryptographic bank notes is built on. Like the bank can sign something like a note when you've deposited Bitcoin and then you're able to unblind it and spend it later without the bank actually knowing like who they originally issued that to, when it was issued, yada, yada, yada. And I still need to dig through the, um, the uh, presentation on this from uh, building on Bitcoin, but from looking at the slides, it seemed also like there was a potential to kind of have a more secure interaction between like, you know, Bitcoin transfers like on chain or on a network with an eCash server itself. And potentially, you know, again, I'd like I, this is just me looking at the slides. I still I've, I've kind of been slowly like picking through the presentations. I haven't finished watching them all yet, but it looks, I think, like we might be able to actually make swaps with an eCash server atomic so that you can like set things up where there is not that like small window of trust where like you give an eCash server Bitcoin and then they could still fuck you over and not sign like a, um, a eCash note. And if I'm correct on that, I'm kind of just going off of like very quick, you know, uh, not speed reading, reading. Speed, speed pretending to read. But if I'm correct in that, that, that would be very fucking awesome. And so, you know, there, there's still a lot of uh, room to go as far as getting all the, the theoretical functionalities that have really been tossed around as like long-term arguments for Schnorr, but it's fucking here. Let's get what we have that is solid out there. And honestly, I really want to see if miners or other entities are going to play the same kind of bullshit games that they did with Segwit because I am fully ready to whip out my UASF hat again and just run a fucking forked client. I do not give two fucks. Well, it's kind of what I'm thinking, wondering. It's like, you know, we got a, you know, CTs being worked on. It's been being worked on for a long time. Also trying to increase privacy and all that. And, uh, and I know that snore you're talking about is like, uh, you know, possibly going to reduce the uh, signature size. And I know that uh, a lot of that CT has to do with uh, the size of the transactions. Maybe that could help with that. And I don't know. You're right. It's like there's some 
right now I just like am glancing at it all too and I'm trying to get it all together because uh, I'm not quite sure if the incentive structure would change that much as much as like SegWit was. SegWit was a huge, uh, you know, I don't know, it was a huge push towards uh, getting the fees somewhere that was uh, reasonable and it was like, you know, there was definitely some minor incentive there to keep going on the way things were. Where now, I don't know, it seems like, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to get it through. But yeah, like you're saying, there's years to work on it. And uh, maybe after the end of those years, we'll start to see like this is just something that's necessary. And it's going to, yeah, I mean, like if you just start thinking about all these different signatures and the way that they could work with the transaction, it just opens up all this different, you know, options for what we could do with Bitcoin. So yeah, I'm really excited. We got the Ricochet with Samurai and CoinJoin with uh, Wasabi and, um, you know, all these different privacy things coming into Bitcoin, which is uh, always good to see. So, uh, yeah, interesting stuff with Schnorr. I got to dig into it more myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like one, like one point, um, I think Janine has something to say. I forgot to mention um, and potentially how this uh, relates to L2. But, um, like, you know, the, the one core point I want to drive home with Schnorr is like multi-sig. Like this streamlines, like th this is actually like multi-sig would be native to the actual like algorithm here. Like, you know, one public key, one signature, like really streamline that to be as efficient as possible. Because like right now, like, you know, like multi-sig really, it is like the only solid smart contract out aside from you know maybe hash locks now or htlcs like it was the first and right now literally what we do is just like here are all the individual public keys here are all the individual signatures and i mean that is just like it, it's really super messy and inefficient like it, it really is just like cram this in here so it works and who cares about how like streamlined and really thought through the architecture of it and Schnorr allows us to really get to the point where like it's it streamlined and made as compact and efficient as possible. And I mean, like the, this, like everybody like new flooding into this space is going through like the same kind of cycle. A lot of people have like, Ooh, new flashy things, ridiculous claims, like the singularity AI powered future. And it's like, we, we haven't even really gotten, like the simplest, most basic, still entirely dependent on human beings proactively doing something smart contract, really to like the final, like efficient structure of it. And like, this is that stepping stone to that. Like th this is about slow, steady, sustainable, solid progress, not just the most flashy promises you can make. And I mean, like, you know, it's, it's been like years people have been talking about this and we're finally here with a proposal, like, even though it is missing some of the functionality that's kind of been talked about a lot as really a big selling point in the long term, like it's here, things will be continued to be built out, continued to be tested, continued to be, you know, finalized into a really secure, solid implementation. And like, it, this is progress. It, it's not fucking Vitalik standing on a stage with unicorns. It's actual solid scalable shit being built. And like, that's not happening anywhere but Bitcoin. 
Yeah, that's true, man. It's a lot of, uh, like you're saying, it's it's really hard to really dig into this because it is not just like some flashy thing to sit back and look and laugh at and say, well, this looks promising. It's, it is some, uh, some heavy stuff to dig into. And um, I'm going to do that. I mean, it's like, uh, it's important. And it's like you're saying, you know, it's going to help just uh, scale Bitcoin and get things running smoothly and operating efficiently and uh, actually just getting this thing to keep moving forward. And uh, yeah, it's an awesome thing. But um, did you want to uh, comment on that or did you just kind of toss the link in there for me? Um, well, I kind of wanted to say the same thing as you were saying um, about L2 because Blockstream obviously put out uh, that paper in April, the end of April of this year, and they mentioned Schnorr signatures in the paper for L2, which is their um, their implementation of a, another type of second layer network. And um, they mentioned Schnorr signatures and said that you know it it allows us to make you know multi-signature contracts with you know a lot more participants than we were previously able to do um they they said that the output scripts uh currently it's not possible to go beyond seven participants but now um at least with well with their with their l2 they could go up to i don't think they actually say uh, how many participants specifically? 150 participants, but then with Schnorr signatures, they say it could go up to any number of participants. So, if if you need like a more uh, clear example of what this helps us to do, that's like a very definitive example. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like that really, like two things about being able to scale up multi-sig that big really like excite the shit out of me one channel factories because you know everybody is like talking about channel factories in the context of like being able to take an end user's channel and kind of move that around without really hitting the chain but like what i'm most excited about with channel factories like if, if you can get like enough participants with reliable uptime that, that don't, you know, constantly have their node going offline or inaccessible or whatever. Like, it's also a huge potential solution to, like, liquidity issues without even getting into, like, having a channel factory and then a bunch of other channels on top of it. Like, it, it would allow, like, I mean, like, think about routing. Like, you have to get a bunch of individual nodes with individual channels from you all the way to whoever you're paying. And you have the liquidity constraints of like how much is in those channels and where they can be moved with a channel. Like, let's say you had a channel factory with like 20 different people, like a 20 of 20 multi-sig. That is 20 participants or nodes in the lightning network where all of the money in that, like, that multi-party channel can be moved to any of the individual nodes in that. Like, it's not as simple as like, here's one side with this much money, here's the other side with this much money, and you move it back and forth. Like that liquidity is able to move any point between all 20 of those participants. And that is a huge improvement in how liquidity can be allocated for routing. And then two, like, I, I'm still, like, antsy in my pants 
<laughs> to see somebody actually grow some balls and get a Xiaomi and eCache server running. And with the ability to really scale up multi-sig this far, like I think that offers the ability to have a lot more solid distribution of trust in terms of like who's actually controlling the the funds held by the eCache server operator. Like the more participants in a multi-sig you can get, the more you can spread that around so that no like one party can kind of just like play something funny and take the money and run, which is really something that is needed to kind of have, you know, solid eCash servers that aren't pretty much entirely based on trusting the operator. And so like, you know, there's like be, being able to really scale this up that big, it really offers a lot more like a lot more redundancy and security in terms of like trust-based models of fund management. And like, I, I really like th th that cannot be underestimated. I think or it, it should not be like that. That is a huge like game changer in terms of what can be built on top of Bitcoin. Yeah, man, I'm already like thinking of some ideas just because like, you know, lightning networks taking off and I'm already hearing about all these, uh, you know, different possibilities as far as setting up uh, point of sale beta testing and sort and like just the idea of like uh, having a huge multi-sig to make sure that there's any funding issues. I mean, like that's just, uh, yeah, it's just one headache out of the way if something uh, needs to be figured out like that, you know, a snore signature with a large multi-sig that, that could help out. And then you get an eCash server on the side. Man, yeah, it's interesting uh, concept. I'm just like thinking about, uh, you know, the cannabis industry and dispensaries and the way that they all work, they could work together and funding like a factory to make sure the liquidity is always there. It's just interesting. Yeah, there's lots of different things that we could do there. So, uh, yeah, like uh, I'm sure we'll see lots of uh, stuff in the future where, yeah, there's snore and lightning and yeah, it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting developments, but you got to do look a little bit further past like down the road. You can't really just see like, uh, yeah, there's not bright flashy lights in front of us. It's just math and crypto, but uh, the possibilities are interesting. So um, it'll be cool to test. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, I don't know. Any, any more uh, comments on this before I pass it off to Janine? Yeah, Peter Woolley. Actually, so um, re real quick, uh, Addy Ready is uh, asking for an eCash server breakdown in the chat. Okay, really simple. Blinded signatures is a concept where you kind of take whatever you're signing, and uh, with compatible uh, signature algorithms, you pretty much do like a modulo operation. So that's pretty much just like a, a math operation that just wraps around and around and eventually gives you a remainder. And when, once you do that, you can kind of pass off whatever you're having signed and have somebody sign it. And then when you get the signature back, you can reverse that operation so that you have a valid signature for the actual piece of data and not like the, the blinded data. And eCash server, it, like th this is really the first ever like digital cash concept. Like it, it was proposed way back in the 80s is effectively you can have like a central server doing this to issue like digital cash notes that they redeem. And in order to spend it, you turn in like the unblinded valid 
um, note and uh, signature and then get a new one issued. So like I, I would give you like my pre-signed like, you know, cash note, you would go to the server, turn that in with your own blinded new cash note and get it signed. And because of using like blinded signatures like this, the cash server has no idea like when or for who they signed the note that I gave you to redeem. So it's pretty much a very centralized, like scalable, like way to uh, transact, but it's incredibly private as long as a lot of people are using it because the server has no way to know who's like paying who. All right, that's my TLDR. Sorry, Jeannie. Yeah, the only uh, comment I had about this was um, some people were saying because, like, we, you know, this this proposal um, was added as a BIP, I think, on July sixth. Um, so almost a week ago now, and um, sorry, uh, uh, someone was commenting. Uh, this guy named Kyle was saying that you know why should we be excited about this? Schnorr signatures are twenty something years old. Um, and Adam back responded by saying that the reason it, it hasn't really been researched or added to Bitcoin especially is because even though it's 20 years old and it looks like mature um, crypto, it's it was under a patent and so it wasn't really able to be subject to crypto research. And so the idea that you would add something that hasn't been subject to at least 10 years of research, the patent expired in 2008, uh, wouldn't make sense. So that's why it was only really added until now because it was still being tested. So that's why. Very good reasoning why not to implement it on something with so much value. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like crypto is hard and like, you know, with very few exceptions, like there, there is no such thing as like absolute proof always forever and ever pretty assumptions ultimately come down to like this is implemented this is based on a mathematical assumption and after they've been out there in the world used for long enough it's just assumed like okay this is secure this hasn't been broken but like there, there is like with, with the kind of cryptography involved in, in bitcoin like there is no absolute guarantee that this will forever be secure it's pretty much based on assumptions about how i think you just look at like some of the coverage we've done on iota like you you do not just do new crypto from scratch and assume that's going to work that that's one of the most retarded things you can do all right ready ready to take the reins Jeanine? Yes, I am ready to uh, give one point to the Crypto's Cryptography team because, um, yeah, Matt Blaze, who you may know as the guy who uh, from the Clipper Chip uh, fame, um, he has sold his very valuable domain, Crypto.com, to Monaco, an altcoin. Yes. Now, why is this relevant? Why is someone selling a domain name to a shitcoin making news in Verge? Well, the main reason is because people have been asking him for this domain, for him to sell it to them 
for years now because of all this cryptocurrency stuff. And he really does not, or at least until, you know, as of a few weeks ago or so, he did not appreciate all of the attention he was getting because all these people wanted to buy his crypto domain. So there are several examples, which I have archived, of tweets where he has said he will not sell his domain. And we are just all crazy people for, you know, wanting his domain. Um, I don't know if they're in order. You might have to go a few down. Shinobi. Um, yeah, there we go. There we go. Oops. Oh. oh, just got an angry. Yeah, go to the next one, actually. So this is from last year, June. So almost exactly a year ago by a month. Um, just got an angry email from someone who wants to buy my domain. It's not for sale, by the way, insisting I must sell it because capitalism. So I guess we can say, you know, point for capitalism, although the thing that happens apparently in capitalism is that when capitalism wins, you get money. Uh, funny how that works. Um, <laughs> so um, not sure whether to give the point in this debate, uh, in this battle to capitalism or to crypto is cryptocurrency. Um, but yeah, there's a few more examples if you if you want to look at them uh, of him saying no, he is absolutely not going to sell the domain, and including this one. Note to the idiot who hassled my department. I'm assuming that means his university department uh, receptionist about wanting to buy my domain. It's not for sale, and if it were for sale, it definitely wouldn't be for sale to you, to everyone else. See above. So he. Basically, for a few years, he's been pushing really hard that he is not going to sell his domain, um, which is hilarious because uh, according to according to the Verge estimate, he made at least five million dollars from the sale, if not a more reasonable estimate of ten million dollars. Um, so he made a substantial amount of money for you know letting go of this you know hard principle that he was holding to that he was not going to give in to the cryptocurrency mania but apparently he has um at first he when this uh, report came out he actually didn't have any response to it he didn't he wasn't really responding to tweets except he did respond to matthew green saying that <laughs> this was stupid <laughs> peak stupid um he also responded to another person um saying oh no, we've lost the crypto is cryptography debate. And uh, I think that was the second tweet in the list, Shinobi. Yeah, or that one, yeah. And so he said, I'm not sure that's the right conclusion, but I worry that the eagerness of some to conflate the two will serve neither cryptography nor digital currencies well. So, you know, he wanted to give into the battle, but not actually give up the battle. But I don't know how he can hold that ground for much longer. But all of the crypto is cryptography people are very upset by his decision. Um, uh, I think a day or two after the Verge article, he did actually write a blog post um, responding to the news and uh, that he is not going to publish the details of the sale, uh, which is understandable. It's a private sale, so we may never know how much he made. Um, but again, he, he reiterates, I don't think completing, uh, uh, completing cryptography and digital currency will serve either field well in the long run particularly as how they per they're perceived by the public and policymakers. Um, presumably he means it's like well, money laundering instruments or drug money or something like that. Um, cryptography itself already attracts disproportionate attention for its potential as a tool for criminals and evildoers. Digital currency adds a completely different but equally fraught regulatory and, more, and policy morass into the equation. Um, so he's very concerned about this, but you know, he's willing to 
you know, give a very searchable domain to a complete scam coin. So congratulations, Matt Blaze. Like you, <laughs> you, uh, you not only gave up the fight, but uh, you you chose one of the worst people to give your website to. Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, like, uh, I was just looking into Monaco while you were talking to see, like, what's been going on with it. It's been running around since about this time last year. And it looks like they're trying to be, an, yeah, an all-in-one app with the card and, uh, you know, I guess, you know, crypto.com, you're going to try and be a one-stop shop for everything. I mean, it's, they're supposedly rebranding and it, uh, I guess crypto.com's rebranding as Monaco. So Monaco, I guess, isn't rebranding, but like, uh, you know, yeah, I imagine they're going to try and be a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but yeah, they do have their own like coin they've been running around with since, uh, last year. And I don't know, it is, a. Uh, I don't know it's one of those things where yeah crypto is cryptography that's uh yeah i think just like the nuttiness of last year it did sort of just like yeah capitalism beat that and um you know i mean when you're saying you're not something's not for sale publicly i don't know it sounds kind of like you're just saying like that's not enough money i don't know <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah i have a the buddy uh who's notorious for tossing money into um incredibly crappy shit coins that has been rambling about uh, Monaco for quite a while. <laughs> and I think they actually, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think they got hit with that uh, Visa card um, shutdown that affected Europe a while back. But <laughs> yeah, this is, like, it, it's really funny to me when I see like these, like projects like because th there was a decent wave of like ethereum projects that kept like throwing around like we have a debit card and i mean you know as, as somebody that lives on bitcoin you know with my shift card like it, it is a useful thing to me but the idea of pushing that is like the selling point is the stupidest thing in the world because like what, what you're effectively doing is like th these projects require inflow of capital they require investors to maintain value and when you're literally making the selling point, like the debit card that sells it for you instantly, like all you're doing is just adding shit tons of down pressure to the price. So it's like you're, you're creating this weird feedback loop where like people need to put money into it to keep the price going up. But the option to really use it as money is, is sell it, not, not give it to somebody who's going to accept and hold it. And it's not really a good formula in the long term you know, to really maintain the price and the economic viability of something. Like if everybody's spending it and selling it, like you, you have to have more people constantly buying than, than everybody selling it through this debit card to not have the price go down. And I mean, it's, it's a really like silly logic to me. Like, you know, the, the goal for me as a Bitcoiner is to get to the point where I'm just paying for things in Bitcoin and they're keeping that Bitcoin. Like, I, I don't want, like, I don't see this in the long term. Like, I sell it to get cash to buy things. Like, that isn't viable in the long term. It, it was just, like, it, it was always really silly to me to see all these projects. Like, seeing that is the big selling point to people and not really thinking through the dynamic it creates for the whole project. Yeah, you know, it was like, uh, 
what BitPay put out that first card and that thing was a fast mover. People started using that and a shift was right behind them. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where people get attention because it's like, oh, you could use crypto in your debit card. But yeah, you really need um, a large group of people uh, hodling and buying in order to have that sort of process uh, be sustainable. So um, yeah, I don't know. But uh, you know, it says that they're trying to be an exchange too. maybe they'll try something where they're actually implementing Bitcoin and people can uh, spend their Bitcoin with that card. I mean, but yeah, I don't know. They do have their Monaco coin. So I don't know. Maybe they'll do some weird process. But either which way, I guess, uh, goodbye to crypto.com. Yep. I guess we'll see how the fallout from that uh, goes. And <laughs> we'll see if uh, if Blaze is right and uh, how he feels in the long term about assisting that that conflation and the potential damage that he thinks it could cause. <laughs> all right well uh i want to take us earlier let me close out some of these windows real quick but uh you ready to take us into the next one rick yeah looks like uh we had some stuff popping up on twitter recently about some trouble going on in iran with some exchanges and uh you know, it like, uh, looks like the real reason we're hearing about this is because, yeah, some uh, some users of Bitrex haven't gotten their uh, funds out of Bitrex. And uh, it's a problem to where, you know, they're being pretty vocal on Twitter. Uh-oh. Shit. Uh, oh, oh, shit. Sorry. Sorry. All right. Yeah. Sorry, guys. I got this back button easily placed. I need to just take my hand off the mouse. So, uh yeah, so this guy right here from Iran can't get his uh, funds out of Bitrex, and, um, you know, he's pretty vocal about it and trying to get that out of there. And, uh, you know, that's something where I just started looking into it, and you start seeing, like, they're also talking about how they don't have access to Polo, but, uh, you know, Polo did get their funds out. And, uh, you know, yeah, they're still, uh, they're still not getting their funds. And I just checked and it looks like the only tweet I've seen from Richie since this discussion has been another listing. So it's, uh, you know, it's upsetting. Hopefully Bitrex will, uh, help them with that because, uh, you know, it looks like there's something bigger at play here with this, uh, you know, them not having access to exchanges. It looks like the, uh, you know, that these whole sanctions are popping back up again against Iran. And, uh, you know, that's got something to do with their access to uh, international settlements and uh, selling oil and gas to other countries. And uh, it's causing a big problem with uh, their ability to uh, handle these cryptocurrencies too. So yeah, so um, Trump back in uh, 2016, you know, was saying that Iran was, the Iran nuclear deal was a terrible deal. And so, a couple of months ago, the Department of Treasury announced its intention for these sanctions to be reinstated around August or no and November of this year. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be harder to, uh, you know, that's why I guess all these, you know, the censorship is happening and it's starting to wind down. So uh, Coindesk reports they have had Iranians telling them they can't access uh, Binance and local Bitcoins and uh, blockchain. I guess that's blockchain.info. I'm not sure. But um that's even with a VPN and, uh, you know, another source told Coindesk that uh, they're that the Iranian government's using a process called deep packet inspection, 
where, uh, you know, they're trying to get past this uh, VPNs to um, restrict these platforms. And yeah, it says that, uh, you know, in Iran right now, you know, there's uh, many people using Bitcoin as a hedge, you know, just like uh, in Venezuela and these other countries, it's, it's easier than getting the US dollar. And so uh, a lot of people have turned to that. And um, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, it's caused a little bit of trouble. I mean, um, back in uh, May, whenever this announcement about these sanctions coming back up against Iran, we uh, saw their their uh, parliament economic committee had uh, Mohammad Reza say that crypto trading was hurting the Iranian economy, citing $2.5 billion leaving the country through Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, back in uh, December, we saw the Central Bank of Iran say a statement that they were planning to ban to bar banks from Bitcoin markets because, uh, quote, virtual currencies have the option to be used for money laundering, support terrorism and exchange sums between wrongdoers. And so we've been hearing about these uh, rumblings, you know, about like possibly Bitcoin and crypto, you know, not being as easily accessible there in Iran. But uh, at the same time, you know, uh, in February of this year, we saw um, that uh, President Rouhani was saying that they were planning on making a uh, separate financial system in order to uh, get around, you know, uh, sanctions. And we've heard them discussing this with Russia and uh, possibly creating their own crypto, similar to the way that Venezuela is doing things. But, um, you know, we've seen now that Trump put basically a ban on investing in that particular uh, instrument uh, because, you know, that would be financing terrorism and a... Uh, you know, a competing political power. But uh, even though all this is going on, you know, they can't restrict that peer to peer layer. And so, um, you know, people are still going peer to peer. And, uh, you know, I don't think that um, this is going to have much effect for, uh, you know, the people that are using Bitcoin and maybe the development of their own uh, currency there in the country. Because like while we've been seeing a lot of this, you know, restriction and censorship, we really still haven't seen a statement from the Iranian government about any of this other than the stuff I just mentioned before. And, uh, you know, I mean, like, uh, yeah, like, let, let me see that statement that President Rouhani, he doesn't want Iranians to transfer foreign currency, especially dollars outside the country. If diplomacy falters, it would mean there are more restrictions and definitely cryptocurrency would be impacted as well. That statement was made from a DC think tank director, Ahmed Khalid. And, uh, you know, I don't know, it seems like a lot of the restriction access is coming from like the, you know, the server side also as far as uh, exchanges they want to follow the law like finance they're trying to follow regulations and they see that sanctions are you know about to be implemented on iran again so they're winding down all this stuff and it feels like maybe in iran and russia there really is like a uh, a need for censorship resistance around the u.s government where uh, you know like venezuela too so i think we'll still start to see these developments you know coming up in the future even though this uh things going on. I mean, we've seen these uh, go on with uh, China and India recently and Venezuela. And it's just uh, it's one of these stories where it's like these like as much as we're building up Bitcoin with Schnorr signatures and stuff and like we got all that testing to do where uh, Bitcoin is, uh, you know, we can have access to it pretty easily. 
it's like uh, these things that are going on, I think, is just as uh, important as really testing the censorship resistance and uh, keeping that peer to peer layer solid and the network uh, strong and robust on that. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, I don't know. This is one of those stories where when I started looking into it, I just started reading more and more. I started. I don't know. You know, it's one of those things where it's like May 8th. Uh, you know, that's when the announcement happened as far as like the possibility are that these uh, sanctions were coming back up. And then May 9th, that's whenever all of a sudden people from Iran were saying like uh, that Iran Economic Committee was saying that two point five billion dollars was exiting the country through Bitcoin. And, you know, I just feel like uh, maybe this is just more coming in from the U.S. and West side than the Iranian side. They're basically just trying to cut off, cut them off from crypto as much as possible, where, you know, in China, it's like they didn't really want them in there. And with India, it's kind of they're not sure about how it's going to relate to their current economics. And so this is an interesting one where it's like uh, I feel like the pressure is coming from outside the country to shut them off and to see how they're going to route around. It'll be a. Uh, interesting developments in the future. So uh, I'm gonna keep up with that, just like I'm watching the India and the uh, Venezuela stories with, uh, you know, good interest, because this is all like, you know, geopolitics and how Bitcoin and crypto is affecting that and how can, uh, in the future, can we see these, uh, you know, these separate financial systems affecting that. So um, interesting story out of uh, the Mideast there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, and it really like, it fucking sucks because like you know iran and like the whole dynamic you know between at least the u.s and that country for the past maybe 10 years it's absurd like because like from every indication and thing i've seen coming out of that country it is one of the countries in the middle east where like you have this insane like theocratic government but the people in the country like for the most part like they're just normal rational people that just want to live a free life like it iran is not one of those countries where like the populace is actually like fanatical or, or pushing for like the kind of theocratic nonsense you see in the government and it seems to me like all the actions that we've taken really to deal with iran it's it's not really addressing that dynamic or, or taking advantage of it like it's just lumping the whole country as a whole in with the government when it's like you know just just like google like iran and protests i mean for like years like there's been like mass like protests and uprisings like you can clearly see that a huge segment of that population is just not okay with the kind of islamic fundamentalism pushed by the government and not okay with how the government is operating things and instead of like trying to deal with the country in a way to empower those people and give them like a, a chance or the tools to really deal with the government, it's just like, let's, let's clamp down the hammer, which is really just, it's going to hurt the people, not the government. And it, it's, it's really fucked up. It's like, you know, there, there are countries in that region where it's like the, the population, like to a huge degree is in support of that kind of insanity. But Iran is not one of those places. And like this kind of shit, it, it's not going to hurt the government that that our government is dealing with. It's it's just going to hurt the people at the end of the day. It, it, it's just like, it's a retarded way to 
like enact foreign policy to just deal with the problems in that country. It does feel kind of like a, a knee jerk reaction as far as just like, let's, you know, you know, we're going to yeah implement sanctions across the board. And, um, you know, because, yeah, it definitely feels like there's a possibility there of where, you know, you can actually help the people kind of rise up against, you know, that uh, that government just because, you know, you empower them with Bitcoin and crypto. It's uh, like I'm saying with the stories, though, when you're reading the stories itself, it just feels kind of like, um, I don't know, it feels like that network is still there and like it's not, um, I don't know, it's one of these things where it's like Iran sanctions and the Iranian and uh, the war in Syria is like a proxy war between, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia, which has to do with like our military being funded by Saudi Arabia, all about a pipeline. It's, there's so many like mechanics at play that, uh, you know, it's really hard to follow, but I mean, it just, it feels like, you know, there's probably going to be, you know, there's always going to be some crypto moving in there, but I feel like it, it might be like you're saying, helping the people to kind of fight back. And, um, I don't know. It's, uh, like I'm saying with all these different, um, stories where censorship is coming into uh, Bitcoin and how exactly can we route around it? This one is interesting because yeah, it's like got so much else tied up in it. And it's like the populace is a little bit more technically educated, I think, than um, Venezuela or uh, or India. But I mean, um, it's I don't know. It's it's something where like the whole story about Iran or Syria or anything, there's just so much wrapped up in it to where you really have to try and start looking through the weeds to see if you can pick out where the story's going. But I mean, uh, for right now, this is where we're at with Iran and sanctions and how they're moving stuff around. I just, uh, I feel like maybe, uh, you know, yeah, it will help them kind of rise up. Maybe there's going to be, I don't know, like we're saying, it's building up a robust thing to where it can avoid that government and our government. So maybe it will create that separate system. All right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, Really just have to hope that like the work on decentralized exchange infrastructure keeps developing. I mean, like if if governments close out other things, I mean, that's really the only option. So, uh, let's segue into a place where the government is being a lot less insane. Right. So uh, this is an article from Business Insider looking at the uh, Swiss Stock Exchange um, 6, pretty much announcing they're going to open a cryptocurrency exchange. Um, it's fully regulated and also set up to deal with the uh, custodian aspect of uh, you know institutional investors managing crypto holdings. And like, you know, this is, yeah, where, where is this part? Like the, the, the one thing in this article, I think they really have like the pulse of what's going on is like that they're literally calling out in this article, like this is just another step in those institutions building the infrastructure that they need to actually get into the space. You know, I mean, like it, it's not just like regulatory in nature, like the infrastructure for the, the kinds of exchanges and on and off ramps in the space, like they, they just, they're not reliable enough and solid enough for like big funds and institutions like this to really use as their entry points into this market. I mean, like they, like 
you know, very wealthy people, like they, they manage a shit ton of money. Like they have very complex developed processes and strategies and means of dealing with things like this. And nothing really out there at the moment meets that bar. And so like, we've seen this, like they're building it out themselves. Like the, the CBOE futures, like the, uh, the, not only the current ETF proposal before the SEC right now, but like all the past ones, um, the company that Peter Thiel uh, is working on, I forget the name at the moment, to uh, pretty much just act as like a liquidity bridge between all of the different trading desks and exchanges on the world. Like, you know, they, they see this space, they, they see the long-term value proposition but don't see the infrastructure necessary to really integrate themselves. And so they're doing it themselves. And I mean, I like, I don't think like we need to see anything more to realize like how serious and long-term they're thinking about this than the fact that we just slid all the way from an insane bull run up to 20,000 back down to like the five thousands at the low. And they're still building this infrastructure out. Like, you know, the, the, that that kind of move that just like boggles the mind of your average person or your retail investor, like it's not dissuading these institutions at all from wanting to build out the infrastructure and actually move their liquidity and wealth into this space. Like they, they are looking at the long-term value proposition and not just thinking like a lot of the retailers in this space, like chase the, the bull flag oh shit, it went down, sell everything. Like this is, this is a long-term investment and a long-term base layer for them to build out infrastructure and services on. And they're going to continue doing it. Like, you know, <laughs> it, it's really weird considering I'm talking about like pretty much big portions of the legacy like financial system, but like they have a hodler mentality. Like they're not just chasing like ephemeral shitcoin gains. Like they're looking at the long term. And it's you know now that I've said that, it's it's really kind of weird to think that like <laughs> that hodler mentality is, is so aligned and similar with like actual major institutions and funds. Like it <laughs> it really is. It, it's not like I mean it's. It's something I've been looking at for a long time now, but it is definitely not where I thought my brain and my attitude would be when I first got into this space. Yeah, seeing, um, you know, traditional, um, you know, places for uh, financial instruments start to pick up Bitcoin and crypto. It's like, uh, I, yeah, I remember when it was like, oh, it was just like aggravated that they were even talking about it. But, you know, like, yeah, we've seen there in, uh Switzerland, like a large part of the population understands that the current financial system is uh, flawed. And we're starting to see a lot of people kind of just wake up to the idea that there's just like this uh, sustainability towards the idea of fiat and the way that it uh, it operates. So, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, it is kind of one of those things where now that we're here, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's kind of like a, uh, well, you know, it's been kind of a hectic three, four years where at this point it does feel like, you know, these people really need access. And um, the more people that have Bitcoin before whatever inevitability with markets happen, it's uh, 
with those traditional markets. It's um it's a good thing. And so yeah, this is gonna help onboard a lot of people there that uh just don't like the current way that uh these custodies are that these uh bitcoins are handled. I mean, like, yeah, we saw uh, you know, Coinbase recently put out all these um different instruments for uh institutional investors and uh Gemini's been working on that as well and all these different ETFs and stuff. So to see a uh you know I mean, even NASDAQ, I think, yeah, they were talking about putting out an exchange for uh, crypto and Bitcoin. So, you know, just to go ahead and see like uh, the first real mover as far as from these legacy markets uh, outside of the futures, you know, like the first traditional exchange coming in. I guess, uh, you know, it's a good thing to see just because, uh, you know, it is really a, uh, a turbulent environment, like we're saying with uh, Iran and Syria and all this uh, different stuff going on with the uh, battle over oil, which is the current economic settlement. It's um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a, a tumultuous time for a financial market. So it'd be a good thing just the more people that are onboarded and, and are already in the system before whatever inevitability happens. Mm -hmm. You know, now, now that you mentioned oil like that, that is, that's another like indicator or sign that I've kind of had my eyes peeled for for a while now like i'm waiting to see an oil product or contract settled in bitcoin you know like Petra? that <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> like you know what i mean i'm like i'm like seriously like that that would be an indication of a, a radical shift in how like bitcoin is perceived and used by a lot of big wealth in the world like just if it, if it was actually used as the the underlying like settlement tool for trades re regarding like huge natural resources like oil that that like pretty much like it, it is one of the pillars of the economy in, in the world like that that's like okay like things have gotten really fucking serious when, when we see that happen yeah man and i mean like we're talking about with the you know this is Iran and uh, Venezuela and Russia, these are heavy, uh, you know, oil consumption, oil production na uh, nations with a large economic, you know, large, uh, <laughs> what am I looking for? Large, uh, you know, large populations with lots of funds to move around. It's a, it's a large market. So, I mean, like, uh, you know, it would certainly, you know, like we're saying, these guys are looking for ways to skirt around U.S. sanctions and all that. I mean, and we know that Venezuela is trying to put together that Petro. It's something where, you know, yeah, I mean, like if we see these nations kind of come together and legitimately able to uh, route around the censorship of the uh, central banking, then um, I think that will be like a pretty big visual cue for everybody to say like, wow, they they beat out the central banking system and they're still operating business without a problem like that. Yeah, that would probably wake a lot of people up to the uh you know the real possibilities here mm -hmm. and you know <clears throat> sliding along uh this is something that's i don't know it doesn't really shock me but at the same time this is not the best development um bits of gold a uh, big israeli bitcoin exchange uh, just entered into an agreement with the Israeli tax authorities to start sharing customer information with them. And the one thing I want to point out <clears throat> that's kind of uh, 
things don't really add up here to me is uh, financial brokerages are required by law to pass information, um, you know, regarding large or suspicious trans suspicious transactions to the Israeli money laundering and terror financing prohibition authority. And, you know, it's, it's rolling my eyes, but you know, I, I get that, <clears throat> but <clears throat> Kind of the reason and the logic for the tax authority approaching bits of gold was to look for money laundering and things like terrorist financing. And that just seems like that doesn't add up in my head <clears throat> when they have a specific, you know, institution set up to deal with exactly that thing that, that already has legal mandates to share that kind of information with them so that they can investigate. And yet you have the tax authorities using that as an excuse when there, there's already an institution handling with, with legal access to that data to, to deal with those kinds of issues to get information out of bits of gold. And so like the, the, the deal that they've made is effectively to hand over uh, information regarding um, any client dealing with transactions um, of over $50,000 in the last 12 months. But the one thing I want to point out is um, bits of gold that have already kind of been, um, you know, audited by the tax authority. And this was done not to look at the company itself, but to look at large scale clients. And so like to, to me, this, this, like there are a lot of parallels here with what the IRS did with Coinbase, where, where they pretty much, you know, approached them and demanded years of backlog records on all their customers. And it pretty much got to the point where anything over um, transactions over $20,000, the, the records were handed over to the IRS by Coinbase. And I mean, like, you know, this, this is like, this is them, like governments, in my opinion, simply trying to build up databases of people who actually get their hands on massive amounts of Bitcoin. And, and not just like now, but I mean, <clears throat> like for the, the long-term purposes. Like if we see this space continue growing, we see Bitcoin rip off to 50000 you know, $100,000 a coin, a million a coin in the next like 10 or 20 years. Like people who've acquired large amounts now and actually hold them through that time period are going to be like, it, it's like, it, it literally will be like a, a new class of the 1%. And like the, the way that the Israeli tax authority is kind of using the justification of looking for money laundering and, and terrorist financing when they already have a specific institution for that with access to that information. Like it's like an outright lie. Like it, they're completely bullshitting simply to try to start building those lists now of people with large amounts of Bitcoin. And like, th this is a very clearly targeted, like systematic analysis of people that they perceive might be an economic threat in the long term. Like people who will be able to, like people who will be like the sovereign individual the person who can act like a transnational corporation and shop around for jurisdictions, move their money with no recourse uh, on the government's part to kind of tax or seize or prevent that. And like, that's something like, you know, it's, 
<laughs> I like I, I don't think anybody on the show right now fits in that category. But I mean, that's something that seriously needs to be thought through by people who put massive amounts of money into crypto now, because like in the long term, you are making yourself a target for governments. And I think it's very clear just looking at the kinds of activities that you know countries like Israel, like the U.S and their tax authorities are taking like this is undeniable in my mind like i i know people might dismiss it as like kind of tinfoily or conspiracy minded but i mean this is like just if you look at the actual long-term case for bitcoin itself you actually look at the long-term like kind of strategy that can be extrapolated from individual actions like this i mean this is undeniably clear in my mind what is going on here and it, like this is something that high net worth individuals should not just discount as tinfoil Alex Jones nonsense. Like this is a very serious threat or issue for them to deal with in the future. Yeah, and just besides exchanges, I think wallets, especially hardware wallets, have to start thinking more about this as well because most wallets, their threat model only assumes that someone would want to hack them, hack their infrastructure, hack individual people's wallets. Uh, sorry if the audio is really bad. I'm, do I need to like speak up more or? Just it sounds kind of crackly. How bad is it? I can hear you, but okay. I think it. Might uh, I don't know what to do. Is it better now? A little bit, yeah. Okay, so uh, sorry, I don't have my normal mic with me, so I can't really do much. But um, I would say that wallets also need to start considering this. Um, in addition to exchanges, like exchanges are always bad for this. But wallets, the threat model for most wallets is that, the, that an attacker would only want to compromise their infrastructure in order to actually gain access to the cryptocurrency that holds. But they also need to understand that some actors like governments will also want to hack the infrastructure just to get information on who is using the wallet, how much Bitcoin they have, where did that Bitcoin come from, where is it going, um, that kind of thing. They're going to hack it for information. So if wallets are not designing for that kind of threat, if they're only designing for compromise of the keys, like the keys just getting stolen, then uh, they're not really protecting their users. And I'm going to say this as well to uh, like, you know, hardware wallet companies as well, because hardware wallets tend to design for people who are holding larger amounts, because really, if you have very little cryptocurrency, that a hardware wallet is justified. So the hardware wallets are designing for, you know, secure storage of these larger amounts of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So if they're not taking into account when they're building their wallets on top of the hardware, that the information that they're sharing with third parties is also very sensitive, then they are doing everyone a disservice because the more, the, if, you know, it's not just their users getting de-anonymized that's a problem. You know, everyone who gets de-anonymized affects the, an the anonymity of everyone else because anonymity is something you do in a crowd, it's not something you do alone. So, yeah, I just want to say that in general because I think wallets, like, I mean, besides Samurai and Wasabi, um, most wallets are not designing for that yet, and they really need to. And it's going to be a big problem 
if governments start targeting them more specifically harder in the future, and they can they can easily get this kind of information because the laws were not designed with that problem in mind. All right, I'm, I'm going to give a, a little recap of that. I'm not sure how clear it was for the users, but um, pretty pretty much uh, Janine's like comment was that like you know both like hardware wallets and wallets in general and like kind of exchanges aren't really taking this kind of stuff seriously in their like security models and how they model threats. Like they're pretty much solely centered around preventing private keys being compromised where like you might see exchanges in the future or, you know, the, the backend infrastructure of something like a hardware wallet or software wallets specifically be targeted and hacked just to access user information on their balances and not simply the compromise of the private keys. And that that's something that businesses in this space really need to start integrating into their security models and taking seriously because in the long term, like that really is a very serious threat that they're presenting to the users. Yeah, you know, I mean, like this is something where when we saw Coinbase reaching out for uh, our, you know, so saying that they needed uh, information from Coinbase, Coinbase, Coinbase users for, uh, you know, tax purposes, they were going for users at uh, twenty thousand dollars or more. But it was something that you know definitely speculate about uh, the long term value proposition and how uh, this data could be used, uh, you know, for more than just tax purposes. So. Yeah, to see it uh, going on in uh, Israel is something where, you know, definitely, uh, yeah, you know, it's like uh, wallets and exchanges need to be thinking about that sort of thing, about how the long-term proposition of this, just the information about what the balances are, could be valuable in itself and um, something that should be, uh, you know, should be protected. So, um, you know, yeah, outside of, uh, you know, the normal guys like uh, Samurai and Wasabi and everything, just uh, be very precautious. And, you know, it's something that we try to tell people a lot is just to be precautious about what they're, where they're moving their coins and always holding their private keys. And, you know, yeah, even um, the hardware wallets, it's something where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure how much they built up that sort of protection, but it would be, uh, you know, definitely something that's worth building up is like any sort of uh, protection of the balances. Mm -hmm. All right, now, uh, slide along, slide along. So uh, South Korea is taking further steps to actually solidify a pretty clear uh, regulatory uh, system. And pretty much just uh, the TLDR. I don't want to really linger on this too long. The only <clears throat> like decent amount of information is in Korean, and um, translate wasn't very clear. But they're creating new legal definitions for uh, crypto uh, assets and exchanges and brokerages, <clears throat> as well as like um, you know actual crypto platforms like Ethereum and EOS. I think pretty much what they're the gist of what they're doing here is just establishing different classifications for different things in the space to kind of approach each category in, in like a unique tailored way as far as regulations so that they don't have like kind of universal 
like ways to handle things that might be, you know, appropriate for one class of businesses or things, but very inappropriate for the other. And so <clears throat> I, I'm not really a fan of like specifically crafting entirely new regulations rather than trying to fit things into the existing framework. But I mean, I, I guess it is a good thing. It, it could be worse to like actually try to recognize the distinct properties of individual things and not just kind of broad strokes, throw regulations across everything where they might not fit or they might impede specific things. So, I mean, it's, you know, I, I wish they would have tried to just fit things into existing regulations, but they could be doing stupider things. Yeah. I'm not sure on that either. It's just, um, you know, yeah, they're in um, South Korea not too long ago with the whole uh, price rise. There was a lot of discussion about any ICO whatsoever, you know, immediately gets listed and people invest in it. And there was a lot of speculators losing some money there. So, um, yeah, I mean, they might be taking like a, kind of a, you know, more of a, uh, trying to change things up approach because they just see it's like a, a bigger problem over there for them. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, I imagine we'll start seeing more and more like this where the actual guidelines are going to be uh, starting to hand down from the actual governments. Like that's where, um, you know, we see a lot of people just kind of in a state of confusion in India right now because they're in this interim where the government said that you can't do this, but we're going to hear your case on the 20th. So Right now, between the 5th and the 20th, they've just been stuck in this limbo where they don't know what they're doing. So, um, you know, however they're going to do it, just to get the guidelines out there as far as uh, what they want to see, it'd be, you know, good to go ahead and get all those out. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, it's, it wouldn't be a proper digest episode if we didn't find something to bitch about regarding Coinbase. Oh, Coinbase. <laughs> Man, they're back. <laughs> So, um, yeah, just a uh, quick, this, this is their uh, initial announcement about Coinbase custody, um, opening for business. And, um, I want to point out here, their, uh, partnership with, uh, electronic transaction clearing, um, an SEC registered broker dealer, um, that they're kind of using for, uh, backend services and expertise as they put. Well... Um, here's something uh, from March. Um, the SEC uh, pretty much caught them red-handed, pretty much taking customer deposits and using them to pay interest on outstanding contracts that they themselves had. So um, ETC, the, the company that Coinbase has partnered with, for their Coinbase custody platform was literally just taking users' funds and using it to pay off their own expenses. Coinbase, you have really chosen a class act partner that will instill confidence in institutional investors everywhere as far as using your Coinbase custody product. Let's give them a round of applause, guys. Get a thumb snap. Woo. Woo. I mean, it's like you, Armstrong, you sure know how to pick them. 
Well, this is like just what we we're talking about with the six in uh, Switzerland, right? It's like, um, you know, as institutional as Coinbase is, like as far as like getting cozy with regulators and the government around the U.S., it's uh, it's still just a real bad shit show. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, like, uh, yeah, they're just all their handlings on all this stuff is uh, is uh, pretty just, you know, make it up as they go and then. Then they claim they have a process and, you know, everything is uh, up to speed and they're building all these uh, real secure cold storage options and all this stuff. And they're batching their trends. It's all, yeah, it's like only after we point out the flaw, then they try to fix it and shore it up. And yeah, it, it it's one of those things where whenever, um, you know, some of those institutional players do come on board, it would be kind of like maybe that's why it's like, you know, like we were saying earlier, it's like uh, when the time does come that these institutional players open an exchange, it's like, oh, well, you know, at least now it's kind of a relief just because these exchanges, they're just sort of like, there's nobody really accountability to them. And the the amount of people just getting ripped off and hacked and everything is, um, is pretty bad. So um, maybe that's another reason we're excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um- Let's see. Uh, and it, 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 like the fuck thing is like they they took they used eight million dollars of customer funds to pay off uh, margin requirements for uh, positions they had open, and used seventeen million dollars <coughs> of customer funds as collateral for something. You know how much they got fined? Eighty thousand dollars. Oh. <laughs> And yeah, it's, um, I don't know. It's one of those things where when I got into Bitcoin and looking into finance and stuff, it's just like, you know, the financial crimes, you know, yeah, you just make a payment and you just keep moving. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm going to be eyes peeled for Coinbase to fuck up their custody platform somehow. <laughs> It'll probably happen to technical well, difficulties hangouts. today. You suck. All right. Well, uh, so we're going into solid X. Um, all right, guys, I, guess, I guess we're flying without screen shares because Google is a piece of shit. All right. So, uh, comments were opened, uh, for the CBOE solid X ETF proposal. And, uh, Pretty much just some, uh, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that this is not uh, in, in this article, like all of the comments. Uh, I'm sure there's a decent amount of negative comments as well. But there is a number of, uh, you know, a number of these positive comments, like pretty much uh, Patrick Devlin, stop messing around and just have a respected company like, <laughs> like Coinbase approver reject this. You guys are a terrible judgment. Uh Travis Williams, by continuing to deny the structure of a new market, by denying ETFs and larger institutional and individual OMRANs, your department is forcing investors to utilize a diverse set of sometimes less secure, less regulated, or services that are not as stable. Um, yeah, and then there's like uh, half of these comments are pretty much just like along the lines of, um, you know, uh, you, you guys are... are like slowing things down and forcing people to use less secure or less solid infrastructure by denying ETF proposals. And I mean, 
if if this is any indication of a like the predominant attitude in terms of uh you know most of the comments like i i think i think we might see a surprise coming uh you know when it comes time to rule on this but uh i'm, I'm gonna try to drop in and out real quick so i can get the screen share going i'll be right all back. right man yeah like these etfs i mean they're eventually they're just always uh up there you know there's a new one always being put up there and they're always being judged and eventually these uh these etfs are just an inevitability and um you know whether the cbo solid x is the first one to get approved or not it's uh you know that's kind of up in the air but i mean yeah there's just more and more of these coming online and eventually the sec is going to see one that they're comfortable with approving it's just like right now it seems like the bigger battle right now is like the whole like secf and uh fcc talking about uh you know it, this one's a commodity this one's a security and uh this one needs to be regulated like this and like that and there's they're still trying to figure out, I guess, which jurisdiction this falls in because, uh, yeah, the SEC really hasn't been taking the lead on this. And it's kind of just like a bunch of people are, you know, they're confused about the technology and then they're confused about how it's used. And then, you know, they're confused about how they should label it. So, um, you know, it's not it's not too confusing as to why they're taking a while to approve an ETF. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we do see that happen just because the sheerer volume of these things coming up and, you know, and there is some, some true statements there about, you know, if uh, they don't sort of take the lead on this, then you're definitely going to see people losing money. So I don't know. It's one of those things where I think we'll see it probably sometime this year, maybe early next year, maybe next year. I don't know. But I mean, it just seems like there it's an inevitability. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's with this specific proposal, I'm not saying it's inevitable that this one will get approved, but I have a lot better feeling about this than past proposals, especially since it's pretty much going to be like a fully uh collateralized ETF, like dealing directly with Bitcoin and not futures project or <clears throat> sorry, not with futures contracts. Because, you know, they, the SEC has that uh, pro regulation proposal change, regulation change proposal open for comment right now that if approved would uh, pretty much like make it uh, possible for an ETF to just like, you know, um, just open as far as like... Uh, ETFs that deal directly with the asset and don't expose themselves to futures contracts and other derivative risks. And seeing as like the solid X proposal is structured along those lines and they're literally like debating regulation right now that would allow something like this to just start operations without requiring explicit approval from the SEC. I think that this one has a lot better chance at uh, approval than any of the prior ones. I mean, like they're they're literally considering like things like this just being able to just start without any like application process. And so I would be very shocked with that, you know, regulation change open for discussion that this specific proposal was denied. Yeah, because, you know, they want to see how they're storing it, where they're drawing all this uh, information from and, you know, make sure it's various sources, lots of stuff they want to check and make sure. Mm -hmm. And so then, uh, 
Maybe you got your screen here back working again, I think. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I want to just try and hop through this next one real quick because uh, I think the last three topics are kind of a little more uh, juicy, so to say. All right, all right. But um, the, uh, yeah, as far as, uh, you know, current operations in this space, gearing up to kind of cater to and integrate with, you know, big financial institutions, uh, I might put a little bit of money on Gemini kind of sucker punching Coinbase out of nowhere if Coinbase continues their historical track record of completing competence, fucking things up left and right. And I think if, you know, given enough time with Coinbase actually dipping their toes into these institutional uh, products and just seeing how the customers of those start to view Coinbase and their uh, their reputation. If that turns out any way that most people have uh, started viewing Coinbase on the retail side, I think that there's a good chance they might just shoot themselves in the foot over the long run and big institutional customers might start looking for alternatives. And if Gemini can really kind of build this out in the background as one of the smaller exchanges in the space uh, in the United States right now, I think that it, it's a good position to kind of try and just swoop past Coinbase and uh, pick up the uh, benefits of Coinbase's mistakes if they continue along the route that they've been. I mean, Gemini just seems like they're doing things a little bit more clean you know, clean cut as far as like not trying to design it the wrong way. And uh, yeah, also um, Bitflyer, another one where um, you don't really hear that much about all the troubles going on over there and trying to do things right. So um, yeah, I don't know. I think uh, Coinbase has been shooting themselves in the foot so many times. I'm surprised they're still standing, but you know, not, <laughs> there's only so many people to go to in the space. And like you're saying with the shift card, you know, there is like that functionality there. I, mean, I really think at this point it's just momentum of the brand like that that logo has been out there for so long people just associate it with things but i mean that's that can really only take you so far and i mean you know i mean just look at me like i literally live off of bitcoin like i need my shift card and the second that square cash enables deposits of cryptocurrency i'm cutting it up and i'm gone like i i'm literally just waiting for it yeah, man, I'm, I've been enjoying buying some Bitcoin through the cash up and sort of steering clear of Coinbase. But yeah, it is kind of like towards the end of the month or when things start to get tight, it is a good thing to have that shift card there just for, you know, if things do get tight. Mm -hmm. All right. So is everybody ready for their lecture, their lecture on safety? <laughs> Let's hear it. Safety. Do not publicly advertise your involvement in the cryptocurrency space. Do not brag about your crypto holdings. It Unless will you're prepared you to deal ass. with the consequences. <laughs> yeah, if you gotta, if you, you know, yeah, you better be tweeting out some gun photos. So, um, yeah, this uh, four days ago, I'm sure. You know, a decent amount of you have seen this already. Um, a local Bitcoins dealer had their uh, house broken into. And I'm betting 
based on the username, which is a USMC1991, I'm betting this is a Marine. And so just let, let that sink in for a minute. Not, not only did these people break into this guy's house, they broke into a Marine's house. And I, I don't know how many of you actually know people in the military, but it's pretty fucking obvious when you're interacting with somebody who, who's been in the Marine Corps. It, it, it stands out in their posture, the way they interact with people, the way they hold themselves. And Marines are generally very proud of it. So they're usually outspoken. So yeah, th th this was not just any random asshole's house who was broken into. It was somebody who is literally a trained killer whose house was broken into. Jeez. Yeah, you know, they're usually armed too. I like the part where it says that they left, um, they picked up a bunch of grass from the kid who mowed his lawn and then they left it in a pile and they stuck a spoon and wrenches in the dirt and they ripped out the internet and TV cables and they also left behind drops of blood where they cut themselves on the glass inside my house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like the TLDR, like these guys like actually staked this house out, attempted to cut off communications of the house so that nobody could call the police or communicate with anybody during the robbery. And then came in armed. Um, so yeah, <laughs> he, he pretty much uh, gave them a bunch of cash out of his safe, um, ran out the door when he got the chance, and pretty much ran down the street telling people to call the police. They sped off in the car, and uh, he got their license plate, and they were shortly after arrested. But, um, you know, based on, like, this article uh, and, like, his speculation – like the, these people were uh, high on meth. One of them was, and like the, the, this, the indications of this are that like this, these were two people hired by somebody else to break into this guy's house and steal his cryptocurrencies. So like the, this is like this is not just some idiot. He's like, I'm gonna knock you over the head and take your money. This was methodically planned. This house was staked out and surveilled. There was an actual strategy put together to prevent the person from being able to contact the authorities after they'd entered the house. Like, you know, it, it was very poorly executed and the, the people who did it are obviously fucking morons and they fucked it up. But like, this was not just an impulsive thing. Like, this was very carefully planned out. And if I was a betting man, I would say that this is the, the general trend that these type of incidents are going to start moving. Less and less impulsive actions and more very methodically, carefully crafted plans. Yeah, this is pretty, uh, you know, carefully, methodically, but not so much. I mean, like you're saying, I mean, one of the guys was on meth and I'm sure, you know, the other two guys weren't or whoever else was there wasn't really that great of a character. I'm sure it was kind of like um, somebody who was buying from him through local Bitcoins had an interest in doing this. But it was like, yeah, they're going to pawn it off to someone else like um you know, I really do fear like the one where we do see the very planned out methodical you know, um, mission impossible, you know, type, uh, theft where, uh, you know, people are very much, uh, 
not just methodically trying to plan it out, but also like methodically studying the tech and all that. But um, yeah, it's one of those things that we keep bringing up, you know, because uh, like, you know, like these ETF stories, we see these kidnapping stories and people uh, getting their uh, their Bitcoin and, and everything, uh, you know, people trying to get at it. And uh, right now we are in that really um, kind of weird phase where there's a lot of people that are just not educated enough to understand what's going on. And, you know, yeah, they try to pawn this bad idea off to uh, a couple of meth heads. And then, you know, yeah. I mean, that's just terrible. But I mean, that's that's not going to stay that way. I mean, here, like, I'm I'm going to just craft a plan out of my ass. No, I will no, 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 no. After, no, after, <laughs> after I find out you hold a lot of crypto, I'm going to show up out in front of your house. And I, I might, I'm in fact, I'm, I might not even pull up in front of your house. I might set up a camera in front of your house, hidden somewhere, and I'm going to watch your house for a month. I'm going to look at the average times that you leave from work how frequently it's at the exact same time. And one day I'm going to walk up to your front door within minutes of when you're supposed to be walking out of the house. And I'm just going to be standing there with a gun when you open it. You're going to open the door for me. I'm going to push you right back into your house with a gun pointed at you from the second the encounter starts. And you're going to give me your money or I'm going to shoot you in the head. Like, I just pulled that out of my ass. The complexity of these types of incidents are going to get greater and greater, more methodical, more thought through, more to tilt things in the favor of the person robbing you and minimize your options. And this is not a joke because a tiny amount of crypto right now that might just be enough for a down payment on a car or some stupid trivial thing to you at the moment. Hey, you're in this space because you think it's going to explode in growth, that the value of these things are going to skyrocket, right? So stop thinking about the value that you hold in terms of what it's worth in dollars now. What is it going to be worth in five years? What is it going to be worth in 10 years? And actually start thinking about how you are going to address and mitigate these risks. Because this is not going to go away as a problem. And it's going to get worse. Just at the same right, at the same time, you know, like there are, um, you know, like uh, Jameson Lop is developing like some, uh, you know, really secure cold storage. And we've seen lots of other, uh, not lots, but we've seen other developments with uh, multi-sig uh, cold storage to ensure that, uh, you know, that uh, things are going to be held in place. So, um, you know, be sure, you know, if you are one of these guys that it's heavily invested to be looking into those things and, uh, you know, making sure that uh, you're taking advantage of the options available to you that, uh, you know, you can keep your, your Bitcoin secure because uh, yeah, it is, you know, these things are going to evolve. I mean, like uh, it went from just like uh, kidnappings to, you know, little arrests to where now it's getting a little bit more planned out and, you know, it, it's just going to keep moving forward. So, uh, you know, in the same right, you just, keep moving forward with the security side of things too. just uh, always try to improve your security on that storage. Yeah. Cause like when, when I tell people like that, I don't even wear crypto memorabilia or t-shirts or anything on my person when I'm just walking around in public, like even if I'm going to an event or a meetup or something, I purposely like wear some kind of coat or something over it so that 
they can't see what I'm wearing or I just don't wear the stuff on me until I get there. And like some people like look at me like, oh, that's way too paranoid. It's like, no, there are people who if they see that they will just they will follow you to the event and attack you at the event. I mean, I have not had this happen, um, probably because I don't wear stuff like that in public. Um, or they'll do something even more serious and like try and follow you home, depending on you know where they think you might be going. But like, yeah, people have to be really careful about this because, like you said, there's all of this expectation that this stuff is going to shoot up in value, and even if that's wrong, the expectation is still real, and people are going to act on that expectation, and that's going to get people in some sticky situations. So if you like, I, I just feel like, you know, if you don't have to wear the stuff, if you don't have to advertise that you're into it, then just don't do it because it just, you know, it eliminates that whatever whatever the risk is for you in the area that you live, it just eliminates that risk if you don't advertise it. Um, because if you do, you can't really anticipate what the risk is because you can't control how you're perceived by every person that you pass throughout the day. Yeah, and just uh, another little quick bit. I just like I've just noticed that this is a story out of Boston, and the other uh, you know major incident was out of Ukraine, where you do see a lot of organized crime. So another thing is just like you know, I know some guys. If you're large time hodlers, you know, come on, get somewhere. You know, there's lots of developments happening in Wyoming, where it's like you know, there's nobody out there. Just get out there or something. You know, there's lots of ways you could sort of improve your security just by yeah, just sort of like putting yourself in the right location. Mm -hmm. All right. Safety lecture accomplished. Let's laugh at a shit coin. Another one. Oh, yeah. Oops. Encore. We lost uh, 12 million Ethereum, uh, 10 million Bancor tokens, and 1 million other shit tokens. We got the Bancor back, though, because we, 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 we had forethought, guys. We put a back door in the contract that would let us freeze everything. We saved the, the tokens. They, they, they got all the Ethereum, but we, we've got our Bancor tokens still. Woo! Save the day. Right. With your, what a, you, save, you, save, you save the bad, shitty security with more shitty security that you planned in advance. Mm-hmm. And um, if you if you if you really give a shit about actually looking more into this, uh, go look at Udi uh, Wertheimer's Twitter. He links to a, an article he wrote last year on the Bancor contract, and I mean, the, like the, it, this is absurd. Like the the fact that people bought this token boggles my mind. Right, I mean, is, I remember we were laughing about it last, late last year sometime. Mm-hmm. Like first, they claimed to have a limit on the tokens sold that was irrevocable. They immediately revoked it after the first hour and extended it in a limited sale of uh, three more hours. Um, and if you look through, you can see Udi dissecting the smart contract. Um, the, like the, there was no unavoidable cap, period. Like they, they could have extended this as long as they want. And... This is literally completely backdoored. They can freeze tokens anywhere. They can issue more tokens at any time. And the real kicker is they can destroy 
tokens at any time. Not not just in their contract that was was supposed to be able to remove tokens from supply like algorithmically as it's designed, but literally destroy tokens from any account, any contract, anywhere. So like this is literally like it's com completely centralized. Bancor can pretty much do absolutely anything they want with Bancor tokens and stored in any contract, any address, anywhere. Well, that sounds decentralized. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. willing to bet that's how they got hacked. No. Yeah, it's kind of funny, man. I don't know what to say other than like these things when they come out, we do laugh at them and, you know, it's just crazy to me that there's like that much money in them already. But yeah, it's uh, the space. It's pretty crazy still, even though people like to say that it's all calmed down, but it's still pretty nuts. Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. Did they, did they seriously name the back door? Like, was it in, in dire times or in bad times? Is that what the, I forget that what it was called. Which they used. I I think it might, if you look at one of Udi's screenshots in his tweet, I think he has it, but I remember it being, it was like underscore in bad times or something. I don't know if that was a comment on it or if that was actually in the code, but it was pretty funny. Um, and I'm going to look at it really quick. Mm -hmm. I'm digging through it too. But apparently, hey, guess what? Everybody should look at Augur too. Here, there's backdoors in that one too. <laughs> All these crazy coins, yeah, yeah, it's it's gonna happen. Yeah, I don't know if uh, if you find that comment, uh, chime in, Janine. But I would like to spend the last ten minutes on something I have not seen really discussed um, widely. Uh, somebody uh, who will remain unnamed brought this to my attention, and I'm glad they did. So I'm sure everybody is familiar with the web browser Opera. Well, um, they, they pretty much split the company into um, two separate companies at this point. Um, Motella, which is kind of operating uh, an advertising business. And then the actual Opera company, which is in charge of the, the web browser, whose revenue is pretty much just uh, it's coming from, you know, uh, search engine integration and um, pretty much hot buttoning other like sites and applications into the browser. But they're doing a uh, IPO that they uh, filed recently with the SEC. And before I go into the big surprise reveal they're also working on an opera news um, product which is going to be using deep learning algorithms to tailor news to the specific individual using the news service and what do we find when we look at the filing with the sec oh Bitmain's investing in them. Interesting. 50 million. Very interesting. 
What's Bitmain's other uh, core business model besides crypto mining ASICs? Oh, it's deep learning ASICs. Hmm. So here is an actual concrete move we can see with them in this department of their business operations. They are investing in a browser competitor with Firefox and Chrome um, that is trying to develop this new news service dependent on deep learning algorithms uh, to kind of, I'm assuming, differentiate themselves. Hmm. Well, I don't really know how I feel about that. Like, we've seen a lot of you know, monopolistic attitude in the, the Bitcoin ecosystem. We've seen a lot of investments in this space by Bitmain that always seem to magically result in complete about faces with the attitudes uh, of the, the companies they invest in and their actions and activities in the cryptocurrency space. And now they're making a play to really kind of dig into the internet at large. And, uh, you know, a browser, that's it's what you use the web through. Like, the, that is your gateway to the internet. And a news service, um, yeah, that <laughs> that's how you actually learn about what's going on in the world. And, like, th this, like, I've said this a few times, but I do not like Bitmain. And not just because of what they're doing in the cryptocurrency space, but because what they're doing in general with this deep learning ASIC application, and again, my thoughts on how that will probably tie into relationships with the Chinese government in the long term, uh, they're really kind of expanding or trying to, in the long term, expand their activities far beyond the cryptocurrency ecosystem. And this, like this, this is literally in my mind like a, a budding, dystopian, cyberpunk company. Like this, this is one of those companies in, in dystopian science fiction novels that is the giant, evil corporate conglomerate that is completely irresponsible, completely reckless in their actions, and overall just a very negative entity in terms of interacting with the world around them. And now we, we can actually see a very concrete move in, in expanding outside of the cryptocurrency ecosystem. Yeah, man. Uh, Bitmain is, like, you know, it's funny. I was actually looking for what was the company in 1984 as you were reading all this because, yeah, it does feel like they're trying to be that, you know. I mean, like in this Wikipedia, I'm seeing like they were, uh, you know, it's a ministry of truth. You know, they try to put out the truth and try to, you know, just like control the masses through information and, and uh, the way that's received. And I mean, um, yeah, it is kind of a big thing where, you know, Bitmain started off as just an ASIC company for Bitcoin. And, um, you know, they talked about moving into uh, deep learning. And we've definitely seen, you know, some moves out of them where it's like uh, they look like they're trying to move into that. And, um, you know. A browser with search engines and people using it and uh, seeing where they're searching and how exactly they're moving around on the internet is something that I could see help them develop that. And um, yeah, you know, I mean, like their whole, even their thing with China, where it was just like, it feels more like they're 
working with China to try and keep Bitcoin out of the country and something easier that they could monitor. And um, it does feel dystopian whenever you start to see um, a company with this much influence and uh, just, you know, funding from uh, Bitcoin and crypto and like uh, and they're making these moves into these other areas where it's like Bitcoin and crypto have been trying to route around this stuff. And now you're just like moving headlong in that direction. It's um, it's one of those things where it's like always been like the back of my mind that Jahan was sort of like uh, tapped by the Chinese government or something where they're like, look, this guy, let's get him. Let's get let's get this thing moving in a direction where we can control it. That's sort of my own um, conspiracy theory and tinfoil hat there. But um, I mean, like, well, I, mean, uh, like I don't think you're wrong, Rick. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, Rad Vladdy brought this up in the chat before I could get this last part out. Um, Opera's adding a crypto wallet to their browser, their mobile browser. They're already building it into that. And, um, you know, wait, anything... wait, wait, Shinobi. Shinobi, this article is written by my arch nemesis. I need to get this out. I need to get no, this no, it out. Is. There's the important thing to keep in mind here that ties all of this together. A light wallet that is not querying your own full node is leaking all of your fucking information, your spending habits, now perfectly tied into what's that? All of the sites you're visiting, all of your addresses, your balances, your net worth, and tie that back into this news service, which is running on deep learning algorithms, which I guarantee you Bitmain is going to try to use as a plug to sell their ASICs. Hey, that is a gigantic data set on the financial activity of every person using this wallet built into the Opera browser, tied right next to all of your internet activity, getting thrown right back into a giant data analysis system. Think about that. Definitely gives you a lot of information. Well, John Biggs did not think about that because he's just a shill or whatever VC pays him the most. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, like, seriously, like, look at all of these pieces. The browser itself, the wallet built into the browser, this news service, which is going to be data crunching all of your activity to tailor news to you, and how Bitmain ties into this. You plug all of these things together, and this is literally a gigantic fucking surveillance system. Yeah, you know, I mean, like on that, I don't know if that's like an actual demo of the SPV wallet, but it's got Ethereum on there and uh, some crypto kitties. But I mean, like it is, I, I kind of worry about it the most just because like I know that the whole idea of those markets is like, yeah, but China is like super inflated as well. And I just kind of worry about what the hell kind of thing can happen as far as like, um, you know, the way these markets shake out and, and who controls what and, you know, maybe in, you know, areas of the West, they're using what is, uh, you know, more predominant in China than they are in the United States. And maybe the United States isn't so united anymore. It, it, I get to worrying about things like that, where, you know, this guy's already got, uh, you know, uh, companies filed in Washington and uh, working with miners in uh, British Columbia. It's like, uh, you know, they're, they're moving out, they're expanding, not just in the, um, 
in the software space and where they're going and monitoring and, and developing ASICs, but also just geographical space and, and stepping on uh, different lands and, you know, talking to different regulators and really just, uh, you know, moving headlong in that position that sort of runs in line with the way that the uh, current system kind of wants to monitor things. And that's, uh, you know, that's no reason why we were here. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's upsetting. And, um, you know, really going to have to keep our eye on this and see what they're doing. I mean, it's, it's in my mind, it's crystal clear what they're doing. Opera has been taking a lot of investment from Chinese companies, including Bitmain. They're building out this new service. They're integrating a crypto wallet, which I it, it's going to be SPV, into the browser itself and plugging this into data mining. Like this is attempting to create an entirely crafted like, you know, that like at least I'm not aware of any real browser or like gateway software in China that is predominantly Chinese produced or Chinese influenced. This is creating a fully comprehensive gateway through which you will interact with the Internet, including all of your financial activity. And just like this is a fucking surveillance system. This is trying to turn the entire gateway with which you interact with information and finances on the internet into a gigantic fucking surveillance system automated through deep learning, which Bitmain is providing the fucking hardware to do all the information crunching. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, like I could see it developed and, you know, yeah, moved around and maybe uh, China says, yeah, you can use, uh, you know, digital virtual currencies or whatever, but you got to stick to Bitcoin Cash. And you got to stick to the to the Opera wallet and the Opera browser. And, you know, it's just, uh, you know, trying to force people into this uh, route where, you know, everything is still highly monitored. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, what can we do about it? I have no fucking clue. But like this is something that that everybody in this space needs to be aware of. Like Bitmain is not just a a company that is disrupting the progress of Bitcoin. They are a fucking completely unethical piece of shit that is building out a comprehensive ecosystem that is literally exactly what a tyrannical government would want and use to effectively enslave their population. And th this goes beyond just Bitcoin. This, this is an issue for the world in general and how the world's interaction with the internet and digital technologies evolves in general. Yeah, like, it's like he's developing the uh, handcuffs and chains for uh, whenever, you know, Bitcoinization, you know, whenever there really is that turnover. You know, it's like that he's already going to have everything developed to where, you know, yeah, you just follow us this direction. I mean, the only comfort to me is that I don't think anyone uses Opera anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's like when, like, yeah, it is like a little bit of comforting knowing that people don't use it, but I can see it like where it's developed and then pumped and people are like, you know, you, you know, in China, they're like forced to use certain search engines and, you know, stay on certain websites. So. I could see it, uh, you know, where, you know, this tool that's been developed by Bitmain is like once this thing's happens, it's like you'll see free financial markets and not free financial markets. And it's like the, the not free ones will be using tools developed by Bitmain.
Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's like, I don't know, there's no solutions that seem evident to me, but this is a very big problem that like we should not ignore and we should actually attempt to address publicly. Like this, you know, like like I said, this like the only reason I'm even aware of this is because somebody else brought this to my attention. Like to, from my point of view, this has completely slipped by unnoticed. All of these pieces are disconnected. And I don't think really anybody is really aware of how all of these pieces put together. Like this, this is something that actually needs to be talked about loudly and frequently and not just drop into the fucking backlog of the news cycle and forgotten. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I mean, like we should stay on top of it. I mean, like, uh, you know, we got these guys in Washington and it's like, uh, you guys know what they're doing? Because I mean, I know Washington likes to, uh, Washington's part of that whole Pacific Northwest where it's very much a uh, independent lifestyle. And, uh, you know, if they really knew, I guess, what Bitmain was developing, I'm, I don't know if they'd be quite so friendly to them. I don't know, but, you know, on that note, think i'm really out of things to say except fuck bitmain fuck bitmain fuck bitmain but um tomorrow at a normal show start time uh we're going to be doing a special edition of the the digest with jonathan bertrand from decentral up in canada to talk about kind of some of the things bitmain is doing up there in the general mining ecosystem so um you know i hope everybody tunes in and watches that tomorrow and I guess on that note, uh, you you can hear much more of my bitching about Bitmain tomorrow. Let's let's slide into the final thoughts. Well, before we do that, um, I did actually manage to find that that um, backdoor. It actually wasn't in Bancor; it was in Augur. So if you want to bring up the uh, GitHub link that I put in the chat, ding. Yeah, so they call it like they it's a they call it only in bad times, and it's really funny because uh, the thread that that was in, someone from Augur actually responded and said, "This is just the escape hatch, which is in the docs and has always been public. Nothing new or secret. It'll be removed once the contracts prove to be secure. It's good, smart contract security practice, and it doesn't involve freezing people's funds like bank cores or collecting your money." It enables withdrawing your funds from the contracts in the event of a critical vulnerability. So, yay. Explanation. Good enough? I don't know. All right. Final thought time. Come on, Janine. Give me some thoughts to load. I'm, I'm kind of in a state of shock that, that there weren't any in the buffer. Let's see. All righty. Incoming thought. So uh, my, I mean, I have um, maybe another thought, but my main thought is that Tutanoto, which is a German email service, just announced today that they will be taking cryptocurrency donations uh, starting today. And uh, they haven't implemented yet, but apparently they plan to also allow you to pay, get a paid version of their email service with cryptocurrencies as well. So I don't know when that's going to happen, but they say that they're just testing out accepting cryptocurrencies first just through their donation page. Woot! All right, come on. I know you got another thought. Come on, let's have it. Come on. 
And I can't find the link. I'll let, okay, Janine's got another one. Good. All right. Thought two. So my, my second thought, um, because, you know, John Biggs from TechCrunch is my arch nemesis. Um, TechCrunch is my arch nemesis in general because they produce some of the shittiest tech journalism ever. And uh, they recently fell for a uh, Ethereum giveaway scam. They actually had the link to a giveaway scam from a really bad blog page that was supposedly from Elon Musk because, you know, this looks totally professional, guys. It looks exactly like something the founder of Tesla and all that, or, or at least one of the founders, not really founder. Well, that's a separate discussion. Um, anyway, this is not something that Elon Musk would put out. So the fact that they fell for it is hilarious. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> what am I getting my free Tesla 3? I sent the two Bitcoin. How, how long is shipping going to take? I want one of those kid-sized scuba tanks. <laughs> I'm trying to find this link, but I cannot find it, man. For you guys tomorrow for your final thought. Like, uh, Meetup is I just like one of those websites where you start looking around for something, and you're like, where did that go? So um, I, haven't, I don't have the link right now. But um, August 7th, if you're in the Denver area, look out for, uh, you know, Andreas stopping through. Mm -hmm. All right, you know, if you find it, we can tweet it out from the Digest Twitter uh, later. But uh, right, yeah. my final thought, some propaganda for the troops. Remember, guys, it's afraid. <laughs> See you next time, guys. I'll catch you tomorrow. Later, everyone. I'm Peter Zane from the Half-German Robot.